welcome to V&A Dundee. We're an international design museum showcasing the brilliance of Scottish creativity and the best of design from around the world. The following audio was recorded live at V&A Dundee as part of our public programme. If you'd like to come along to our next event, head over to the website for details. Um, hello. Hello to, this is Becca, this is Lucy, I'm Mary, just in case you're not sure which one of us is which. Um, and thank you for having us here at the V&A this lunchtime. I'm not going to do too much of an intro because everything I could introduce we'll probably cover within the talk. And if we don't, handle this 15 minutes at the end for questions so you can um, ask anything you're dying to ask then. Also, just to point out that we're here to talk about the faux shop, anyone who's just wandered in, which is the installation in the... Well, what's it called? The area out there, the museum out there. So, um, first of all, their um, practice is known as Atelier EB. So the first question would be, what is Atelier EB? How would you define it? A horrible question to start. So it's a, a combination of Lucy and I. Lucy is an artist. Um, I'm a designer. And we uh, put together our skills and our um, knowledge and that transfers into um, publications, clothing, exhibitions. I would say that's a tell you Yeah, we started uh, as a thinking about doing interior design with another collaborator called Bernie Reed. Bernie was a, a stenciler, like a graffiti artist who worked in stencil. I had just, I was, I was just studying uh, decorative art decorative painting techniques like fake wood and fake marble, trompe l'oeil. Becca is a trained printer. And we'd done a project together and we just realised how well we got on and mm. thought we could pull all our skills, practical skills. And um, so we started doing a few interiors and then at a certain point through our research project into the history of the Scottish textile industry, we just naturally morphed into a fashion label. Mm. Um, and Bernie left and it was just the two of us. So yeah, principally we research, we present that research and we return that, res return that research into both fashion garments that people can buy and exhibitions and different kinds of projects. And how long have you been together for? How long have you been working together? We started with Bernie in 2007. I've known Lucy since 1999. Um, and we were friends and then we started Telly as an interiors company in 2007 and then it wasn't until we did the textile um, exhibition that Lucy was talking about, about Scottish textiles, in 2011 with Panel, the curate, uh, curator's panel, um, that we got into making clothes. Okay, and that exhibition was called The Inventors of Tradition, which is a play on the Hugh Trevor Roper essay, The Invention of Tradition. So, um, you both had successful careers before Atelier, though. Can you tell me a bit about what you did before you came together? Becca. Um, so success is a funny thing. Um, I had my own label. I wouldn't say it was successful, mm -hmm. but it was successful in terms of that I did it under my own uh, rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your talk of success about sales, Lucy was one of my only uh, customers <laughs> and she bought for all her friends. So Lucy championed me from a very like from the very beginning, thank God. So in terms of success, I was very successful mm -hmm. um, in doing what I wanted to do the way I wanted to do it without cutting corners. 
um, and I taught at Glasgow School of Art when I returned from London um, on the master's programme there. So it's very different. It's a different story. Mm -hmm. um, but you were based in Edinburgh. I think that's important to point out as well. Based in Edinburgh, for a fashion designer. Abs absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, came back from St Martin's in '99, and yeah, have remained in Edinburgh ever since. And which designers did you work for, though, beyond your own label? Um, so, yeah, so I've freelanced for many conglomerates. I've never belonged to a company. Mm -hmm. I've always remained outside of. Um, ownership, so to speak. And so I worked for people like Stella McCartney, Emmanuel Garrow, he was the couture house I worked for, and I worked at Van Sophie Back and Liberties. So I did my fair stint of mm -hmm. like going between London and Edinburgh um, and getting experience and understanding the industry and what's good about it and what's not good about it. And you you were at Ungaro before Lindsay Lohan? So, yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was still at Ungaro when Monsieur was still in charge mm -hmm. and it was still a couture house. But I worked on the ready-to-wear label okay. called Ongaro, or You. And um, I didn't actually work with Monsieur. He was, like, doing his couture in his yeah. other room or whatever. But I got to work with the telly. But, of course, couture houses are, are sort of rarity now, um, and sort of rightly so. Um, but great experience. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Lucy? Your background before Atelier? So I've worked as a visual artist for 20 years, mm -hmm. and uh, I've I've done a lot of collaboration. I've always really enjoyed the the contrast of having a very kind of dedicated and sometimes very labour-intensive studio practice and then needing the contrast of working with other people, being more spontaneous. So I've always liked to organise events and I've done had a small record label and done writing and published working mm -hmm. with a, any friendship has the potential to do an interesting collaboration, I think. And um, knew Becca for a long time. And I think it was just the day when she explained to me, when I asked her, like, oh, this great thing I'm wearing, actually, where does it get made? And she said, oh, I make it, I print it here, or I get everything made as close as I can to where I live. And I realised that as an artist, it's very common that you think about what you do in terms of how it fits in a certain kind of economy or network, and you kind of want to know... The, the world in which your your stuff goes into and understand how all these kind of networks work. So to then realise that I loved fashion, but I actually had no idea how things got onto your back and had a bit of a kind of nervous breakdown and just realised, <laughs> how, how does this work? And just started pumping Becca for information and was just fascinated that I could meet someone who worked in a different field, but we had such similar ethos about independence and self-sufficiency and kind of local history and culture and tech and craft. And, um, and I've worked with lots of other visual artists, but somehow being, it being across disciplines takes out a lot of the kind of aggro. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's really great to work with someone who works in a different discipline. You share something, but it still gets to be a bit of a break from my own head mm. because it's it's about kind of making things. And vice versa, well, yeah. That yeah. sort of leads on to my... Well, first of all, what was your first, what were your first impressions of each other? Oh. Was that a gasp from the audience? <laughs> yeah. You, you were definitely suspicious. I thought Becca and Bernie were a pair of, like, just, like, fashion people. <laughs> and what does that mean? Like... Before you knew about fashion? The, you know, I just remember you, like, tottering down these cobbles on your high heels. <laughs> yeah. Thinking, and think, and I remember, because you, you are a very friendly person and you're always full of compliments, and I was always like, yeah, what, what's this about? 
because Beck had asked me to be in a to model something for a shoot that they were doing for a magazine called Nova. Yeah. And but I'd seen Bernie's work in things like ID. He was quite a respected fashion illustrator, so I knew it was you know I knew that you were like interesting people. But just I think I was you just always imagine that fashion people are a bit shallow. So then I was really pleasantly surprised when a lot of things that we discussed when we met for the first time, you really kind of followed up and we kind of kept in touch and just slowly you realised that, oh no, actually you've got a lot of things in common. Mm. Okay, I'll come back to that point about the shallowness of fashion later. Yeah. Becca, what were your first impressions of Lucy? Um, well, I actually didn't know anything about Lucy. It's a bit of a weird one. I'd gone to, was it the Beck's Future? I think it was the British Art Show. British Art, was that? It was at Inverleaf House, yeah. At the fruit market? No, this was at Inverleaf House. So what was that, the Bex Future? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. It was the okay. Inverleaf House okay. and Lucy was standing with her mum. And I didn't know Lucy had work in the show. I just saw... I'd, I had my label at that time and I had two models. I had a Korean friend, Uni, who would model for me and a Polish friend, Babs, who would model for me. But I really wanted a Scottish woman to model my clothes as well. And I saw Lucy standing with her mum and I thought she's she's the perfect model. She's got that uh, skin that's like not never been tanned. <laughs> she's got a great rack on her. Um, and I, I asked in the room, like, like, does anybody know this person? They were like, that's Lucy McKenzie. And I was like, you know, I'm not from the art world. I haven't got a clue. You know, I yeah. didn't have a clue. So I was, and I'd just come back from London. So like I asked around, I got her phone number and I asked if she'd, model for me and of course she was very suspicious and rightly so. So how long did it take until you gelled, until you found some common ground? It was around, well in 2003 I did a, a project in Warsaw with an artist Paulina Aloska. We mm -hmm. ran a temporary bar where we designed the interior and you know we had like homemade vodka and I asked Becca to design the outfits for the bar staff and they were su it was such interesting designs. They were so odd with these big, like, weightlifters, leather belts. That was and, taken from your next belt, Mum. From, yeah. And, and, like, lace socks. And it was just so kind of out the box mm -hmm. that I thought, no, this is a really... This Captures your attention. ...in a really odd way. And I was it? heavily pregnant at the time, so I, I didn't get to go to the bar. And it was the most sort of, you know, I didn't feel rock and roll at all being pregnant. So it was the most... Sort of, I could feel like <laughs> there, knowing that they were all drinking vodka and having a. Br I mean, you had a brilliant time, didn't mm. you? It was a lot of hard work, but you mm. had a brilliant time. So, that was. But Lucy also modelled for us. Mm -hmm. We did the Stella McCartney. Bernie and I did the Stella McCartney shop. We did a huge freeze, screen printed freeze for Stella's first New York store, and Lucy was actually on the walls. So we worked together, but we didn't force anything. That is okay. the truth. No, but we just always had so much to talk about. I, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but I feel like I always just, like, completely pumped you with questions. I don't remember. No. But it probably really? just... It's just lovely to, like, be around somebody that's like-minded and also expands your mind. Mm -hmm. Like, that's really key. You know, what I love about Atelier and working with Lucy is we don't agree and we don't like the same things, but there's a res enough love and respect there that we can... We're into what each other are into, you know? Well, I was going to ask, you know, it's a beautiful thing working together, but it can also be quite fraught. How do you negotiate your different perspectives and realise them within the form of an exhibition or a collection? So, for instance, I'll give you an example. Like, Becca will say, oh, I want to do this, like, 
publicity photograph based on the shot from the Bauhaus of the woman sitting on the chair with the, the is it Oscar Schlemmer? Oscar yeah. Mask. And I will just roll my eyes and go, oh my God, what a cliche. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. And then I will say to Becca, oh, I'd like to do something kind of to do with Elsa Schiaparelli's Trompe bow jumper. And she will just be like, oh my God, that is the biggest fashion cliche. <laughs> but because, like, I don't... She has her look on art. I have my, she has maybe, I have my naivety when it comes to fashion history. You have your, I wouldn't say naivety, but you've got like a different, a non-academic totally. perspective. So it's actually just really a relief to just let go of that kind of vice-like grip you have on your own sense of like taste Absolutely, or yeah. permission, you know, reference. And that's really important in the collaboration because yeah. then I learn things that I wouldn't learn otherwise because I've let someone else do their thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could really see in your exhibitions that both of your voices are there. Mm-hmm. It's not like you've tried to find some sort of unified no. manifesto. I can definitely see both of you in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and how has your relationship fed back into your own practice? Can you see the influence of Atelier EB in what you do individually now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I am not sure where anything starts and stops, to be honest. Um, it's it's really hard to say because our, it's not like you can switch your brain on for a telly and then switch it off and put on Becca. Becca is an yeah. atelier, just as Lucy is. It's it's. I try not to think about these things too yeah. much. Mm. You know, just I, let them happen. I don't own any of this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like ownership. It's um, you know, if I think of it in terms of this is apart from Bernie and Bonnie, this is my most successful relationship I've ever had. It's a very successful relationship. And so that alone, like, I just don't want to think too much about it. It just is. And when it isn't anymore, if that ever comes, Mm -hmm. that's so be it. But um, I'm very proud of how we navigate through our friendship and through business, you Mm -hmm. know, because we are a business. We have to make money to survive. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say also for me that, of course, that has a huge influence on my own work and it's all that research that we do of course is in my own practice but I think because no matter how wonderful a collaboration is it's still like you still I still have to like check with Becca if certain things are okay Mm -hmm. or not Mm -hmm. so then that means that working on my own the total freedom to just do things in a completely I don't have to please anyone or Mm -hmm. check in that everything's okay with someone else so that means I often get to take the same sort of research and then then I can really see what I want to do with it personally yeah. and I get to do it without the restrictions of having to kind of... Because also when I, I tell you, we have to kind of explain things a bit because we, that's just the way we mm-hmm. work. Whereas with my own work, I don't have to be so kind of... Um, I can be a bit more subjective and okay. a bit more weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you've mentioned that Atelier EB is a fashion label. Now, you operate outside the usual structures of the fashion industry in terms of the way you sell, where you sell... The calendar that you worked to was that a decision that you took or is that how it's evolved I think everything we've done has just been a response to the restrictions of how we work we know mm-hmm. there's things that we don't want to do so we've had to find other ways to do it and we we've given public talks before and there's been kind of young designers in the audience like looking for a formula mm-hmm. and we just can't offer that because it's so particular to our own situation mm-hmm. and so much of it's based around the fact that through my own work, I have kind of anyway sort of open door to certain institutions mm. or visibility. So it's just kind of 
it's not trolling, but it's like cannibalising on all that that's there anyway mm. and using mm -hmm. those institutions, electricity and transport well, you've and... Sorry. Yeah. Well, you've worked within the fashion industry and now with the telly. How do you prefer working sort of beyond the confines of the traditional fashion industry? I suppose um, I always, you know, even when I was studying fashion, I always had this sort of love-hate with it because... You know, I always understood it's a major pollutant of the world. Um, who needs any more clothes? So I think I've had to try and navigate a way through it that felt good. And a telly feels good. It doesn't feel like, you know, it feels... Lucy is obviously busy with her own work a lot of the time. It feels we can only do a collection um, once every three years. That suits us. Mm -hmm. You know, we are not interested in anything um, more than that because... Like Lucy said before, it normally comes with a huge body of research. Not that you would know that when you look at the collection, and not that you have to know that, because some might say that's just a round neck lambswool jumper. But within all our clothes, there is symbolism and meaning, but that's irrelevant if you really don't want... If you don't want to read into it, fine. If you do, we've got lots of stories to tell. So you can engage with it in whatever level. Yeah, totally. the viewer. OK, just a smash hit style question. Who's your favourite designer? Ooh. Like no contemporary or, or from history. Oh well, you know. Yeah, yeah I, I know you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll see Lucy's. Lucy's is Madeline Vianney, and Becca's is Bonnie Cashin. I would just like to say also from the last question that like we have total respect for anyone who manages to make it work in the fa in oh, the conventional fashion. Absolutely. It's not that we think that people who do it in a more conventional way are wrong. I think just knowing how much work goes into yeah. it. It's it's incredible that especially small and independent labels manage to mm -hmm. continue. It's insane. Well, they often don't. Yeah. Yeah. And we've just had to navigate it, you know, and we, we have losses and we've had gains and we it's it's all an experiment for us too. We mm -hmm. haven't got we don't have a formula, so to speak. But what we do have is a structure that allows us to make items, i.e. art objects mm -hmm. that we sell <laughs> for um art prices that subsidise the fashion because we actually don't make any money off the clothing because we don't mass produce. So that is our formula, um, but it doesn't always work. Okay. Um, but that's how we manage to navigate through making clothes because unless you're mass producing, you don't make money from clothing. Yeah. And we're not interested in mass producing or cutting corners or exploiting people. So, so But yeah. we need these clothes. Yeah. Well... The clothes, I think, have a very particular look, even though you're both bringing your own perspectives. What would you say were the recurring themes or items or motifs within Atelier collections? Well, we use the kind of neoclassical imagery a lot. Yeah. Which I also used. Like, we both yeah. used mm -hmm. in our own work. Yeah. Before we worked together, and and that continues through. Um, wearability. The practicality, the practicality of something. Mm -hmm. um, does it get better when you wash it? We like mm. things like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Lots of layers, because we're... I mean, I live in Belgium, which is also not the warmest country in the world. We all both have cold studios, so we just know the value of... Yeah. When you can still keep keep the putting the layers on and still look good. Being able to wear it. And I think the textile element. I think that's... You studied textiles, didn't you? I studied fashion print, yeah. Okay. So I'm trained as a printer, but I suppose... Subconsciously, because we're Scottish, mm -hmm. I really believe that we have this sort of deep understanding of textiles, and the Belgians do as well, yeah. because they had the similar industry. 
and so often the fashion that, that was created or the garments that were created in Scotland and in Belgium relate to textiles first and foremost. It's not so much about cut okay. and uh, silhouette. It's more about textile leads. Okay, and for those who don't know, the EB stands for Edinburgh and Brussels. Edinburgh for Becca, mm -hmm. Brussels for Lucy. Um, I would also say as well that we're, the kind of things we want to make are things that don't necessarily look that good, like, online. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very, this is why we do these showrooms, the tour, mm -hmm. and because we just want, we want people to feel it. We want them to feel how soft it is, or it's the idea that you the pressure to design for, like, selling online, that just, yeah, that's like a whole other thing, and we just don't want that. It changes it. Pressure. So when you do showrooms, you operate as the salespeople yeah. for the showrooms, don't you? Yeah, and we get such amazing feedback from the customers. And what types of people wear your clothes? Is it quite a broad range, or...? Yeah. Um, Are you surprised sometimes by the people who come to the showroom and oh, try things on? Absolutely, yeah, and who purchase it. Um, well, we try, we have very expensive items that are normal, normally order only um, in the showrooms, but we also have sweatshirts and badges so that everybody can get a bit of it. But it really ranges. We, we have got some really great customers. We have a very loyal fan base. Mm. Um, and... We try to, you know, if people can't afford the clothes, we try to work out a pricing structure for people so they can pay it up. We're very open to the idea that people want it but can't necessarily afford the more expensive uh, items. So we try to, yeah, we try, we try to understand the customer yeah. because they are loyal. And then things like, okay, of course, we would love to always work with, like, organic cotton, mm -hmm. but it's really expensive. And so we also work with, like, fruit of the loom mm -hmm. off the shelf because... That's all, like, we also want it to be not that expensive, so yeah. we kind of offer different... Yeah, price different, um, And you have socks products. and brollies and yeah. Yeah. soap and a rope, yeah. things like that as well. So, and um, just bring it back to the faux shop. What is the faux shop? What are we looking at here? Or what was the idea behind it? I guess it's, a, it's an artwork. It's, it's an artwork. Yeah. It's an artwork, but it's simultaneously, like, just a display device. Um, it was made for an exhibition called Passerby that was staged at the Serpentine Gallery in London in Good, 2018. Yeah. Yeah. That then travelled to Paris and it's now on in Moscow. And we were the curators of the show, but we also exhibited our own work and we had the fashion, the clothes for sale. We invited contemporary artists, we borrowed historical pieces. So it was a very, very tricky thing to kind of navigate like our position within it because we had so many hats to put on and we had to kind of think about the different ways we had to handle all the material depending on whether like we'd made it or we'd borrowed it and you know you've this you've you've got to things other people's work you just naturally have to treat it slightly more conservatively because with our work we can just do whatever we like but um for other people's work you have to kind of yeah have a bit of distance and we we made this and several other pieces um as kind of connective things to join different parts of the exhibition, we'd done all this amazing, we'd found all this amazing research. And one thing we wanted to do was to kind of connect the public to the, connect the present with the past by slightly bringing to life things that we were showing. So for instance, in the show, we also had these huge kind of decorative hands that opened a curtain, which were a direct copy of something from the exhibition, Britain Can Make It, which was from 1946. At the V&A. Yeah. yeah, at the Victorian Albert in London. Um, and so this was also a piece that we hoped could connect things also physically. You saw the back of it and the front of it, which was really important 
in the exhibition because it was about display and um, the connection of fashion or fashion mannequins with modern art and also just the kind of overlap between display mm -hmm. and art. Yeah, it's 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 a practical art piece. Yeah, because um, we can we can uh, change the window display every time we install it. We have uh, freedom within <coughs> it. So, what I really like about this is it's it's you can actually use it. You yeah. can utilize it. So it it sells our collection, or we can put other people's work in mm -hmm. the window. Although I don't think we would. I think it would always be our work, so to speak. But it doesn't necessarily have to be clothing. Mm -hmm. And so this will continue as a piece. Um, it's been bought by the Brandhorst in uh, Germany. So we've had to let, uh, loan it back for uh, the V&A. They kindly um, managed to negotiate that. Um, and it's a piece of work that will always uh, evolve. Okay. So was it based in a particular shop or is it in every shop? Something yeah. that you can see anywhere? So it's based on a shop, um, loosely based on a shop in Ostend. <laughs> where Lucy actually owns a property now, but at the time we would just go to Austin to go to Musee, which is a brilliant um, art institution there. Um, or go to the beach. Or go to the beach. And we would all, and we did a group show at Musee as well. And this shop was on the corner near the museum. And we used to paw over the window display because it was mannequinless. They didn't mm -hmm. have mannequins in the window. They just did lots of beautiful draping. And it was a shop of clothing for women over a certain age, and it just had a particular feel to it that chimed of a telly. Yeah, and we, again, like we, one of the, the reasons that we started working together was I remember we had a really long conversation about in, like boutique designs, and I remember asking you, like, what would you like your perfect shop to be like? And that's in a way how the collaboration started. But we've always appreciated shop window display, especially when it looks a little bit kind of out of date. Those shops, you think, oh my God, this is going to be gone in a few years. This is like a, a time capsule. Mm -hmm. And of course, you realise that, especially with window display, because it has such a fast turnover, it's got to be so contemporary. That as soon as it's a little bit out of date, it looks like really dusty. So in the end, it becomes a kind of turbocharged symbol of everything that we know anyway about the way culture changes and taste changes. Fashion itself is also a really good and interesting mm -hmm. indicator of things that we also know in the world of contemporary art and literature and everything else. It's like zeitgeist. Yeah, and also the skills involved in yeah. dressing a window like that. Totally. Can yeah. you talk a wee bit about that and who you worked with? So we worked with uh, Barbara and Howard. Um, how did we meet Howard? Was it through Mart and Cabinet? So this window dresser called Howard Tong... He was a, came from a performance art background and I work with a, or we work with a commercial gallery in London called Cabinet and one of the men who set that up had done window display for Harvey Nichols and Mulberry mm -hmm. and he'd done it with this guy, Howard. So I'd always known that my gallerist was really good at like putting up curtains and <laughs> really good at like designing art fair booths because he just had this touch of, mm -hmm. he understood the power of display. And um, so we got in touch with Howard through Martin. We did a little interview and he put us in touch with Barbara. He knew because her background was in like men's outfitting that she really had the touch for how you kind of do all these things with cuffs and Twists collars and, turns, and padding yeah. and yeah. pinning. So we worked with them and another woman, Catherine Scanlon, who was another part of their kind of team. And I found it interesting because I was, I've been, uh, I studied and then have worked 
in this field of decorative painting, trompe l'oeil, fake wood, fake marble, which is a kind of craft skill, but it's not, it's, it's, a, um, it's commercial. But now, because it's so lost, it, it feels really sort of precious mm-hmm. and very skillful. Yeah. And it's the same with window display. I think as we go into, as there's this, this complete crisis in like physical retail, it makes us see uh, shops and windows in a slightly nostalgic eye because they're going. Their high streets are, are dying. Wait, would you say it's a dying art? What? Absolutely. Totally. You, you can't study it. It's what you would study now. The equivalent would be uh, visual merchandising, mm-hmm. which is completely different. You don't learn how to like trim a window. You learn about numbers and units, mm-hmm. and it's a very different industry. Like for instance, when Barbara and Howard used to dress windows, they would do it nine to five or whenever the shop was open, like everybody else. They would go to work like everybody else. Nowadays, shop windows are done in the dead of night. Nobody gets to see the windows being done. Mm -hmm. Like it's a sort of dirt, like it's a bad, you know, like it's a dirty word Mm. that we don't see the... Well, it always says excuse their appearance. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. If they cover it, but it's normally done in the dead of night. So it's sort of fascinating um, Mm. because we need it. Mm -hmm. We need it. We need it in order to sell items. You know, if, if a window display is great, it will get the passerby in the shop. And those skills, there would have been a time that every town had a Howard and a Barbara who For were sure. able to do yeah. that. Yeah. It would have been part of the job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you hope to capture the history when you were doing this? Was that part of it? Yeah. Have, yeah. yeah. But also in terms of people told you their stories. They oh, yeah, I mean, it became... Uh, we had we, the Mary Quant show that's about to open here. Yeah. We saw it in London and we just kind of rubbernecked and just listened to all the conversations of hearing, especially women talking about, I guess only women talking about their memories of Mary Quant and making her clothes, buying her clothes. And it was the same with this because we would be there like selling the clothes, certainly for a, a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. The amount of conversations we had with people where they would just, their eyes would glaze over and they would talk about their their memories of mm-hmm. the shop in their town. Yeah, because yeah, it captures the memories. everyday. Yeah, totally. I think you've done that really well. So what sort of feedback have you had? Have you had it, and I know the answer to this question, but have you had any really important visitors to your exhibition that you're excited <laughs> about? Yeah. Who <laughs> <laughs> was that? Well, I got to meet my hero, Martin Margiela, which was pretty eh, amazing. And he didn't, luckily, didn't disappoint. Because you never know, you know, you never know in these situations. But he came to see the show in Paris and we had really good conversations about his mother was a hairdresser. You know, he spoke about his family. Um, And he, yeah, so that was, you know. And he's he's gorgeous, apparently. He is gorgeous, very tall and gorgeous. He never has his photograph taken. Yeah, so I didn't actually know what he was going to look like, you know. Mm. But, um, yeah, we've had lots of... We also met Bless, Mm -hmm. um, who are a design duo that worked with Margiela back in the early 90s, um, but have always remained, even though they've worked for conglomerates or other fashion houses as well as themselves, they've always remained independent. I think they started as stylists and then mm-hmm. it sort of moved into fashion. So it was really nice to talk to them. So we've had some really interesting... We're outside of fashion, but when we showed in Paris, we uh, were actually there for Paris Fashion Week, oh. which brought <laughs> lots of yeah. people out. Um, so it's good. It's good to to meet these these people and talk about Dip it. Dip a toe in and then... Yeah, and then run. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you not have... Was it someone related to Madeleine Vionnet? Yeah, then, because this is my hero, Madeleine Vionnet, uh, I'm trying to think, what, what would the art equivalent? Because you'd, you'd say Chanel would be like... 
yeah, I don't know, is Viognier the Duchamp of fashion? I'm not sure, but she's she's a really, really important figure. And her, like, her only living relative, her, like, grandniece mm-hmm. or her niece came to the show. It's just, that's yeah. Paris, that's yeah. Paris. Yeah, it brings them out. Yeah, <laughs> for good and for bad. Yeah. I'd also like to mention that, of course, with this piece, when you ask why did we make it, also because we as a label have always tried to work out like how we want to display our clothes and we've just never found fashion mannequins that we liked, really liked using. And so we learned through the show that this is the way mm-hmm. we want to show our clothes. This is what makes them look good. This is how they're meant to be seen. Yeah, it captures good. the body in a way that a mannequin can't. Totally. Yeah, and we learned so much about like... Also, as a, as a sculpture, we don't really work much in sculpture, but like this combination of the um, this kind of trompe l'oeil, of this kind of verisimilitude mm-hmm. of a shop, but then that it's so beautifully uh, trimmed. That's the word you use: trim a window rather than dress a window. Mm. It's been trimmed so well by Barbara and Howard that you have this kind of um, uh, anthropomorphic you have the clothes in these kind of dynamic positions but because it's with all these threads it's extremely like fragile and vulnerable so you have a sculpture which combines that sense of time because it's, you know you think of the dustiness of windows and the fact that it's it's changing but within a very the clothes will stay the same probably it'll totally. always be from this one collection so it'll slowly become this kind of like snow globe of calcifying somewhere. yeah <laughs> but then but you have we also it's a it's a school we are learning we every learn. time we work with barbara and howard it's like we've gone to school and we're learning through them so you take the skills away oh, oh afterwards. We, we like you know we embark we did street for dreams because we sold this piece um to germany um now that passerby is in moscow at the moment the show we we created new pieces for moscow and we we created three street vitrines and we devised different ideas for those vitrines and we really worked like one-to-one with howard and barbara Mm. trying to make those ideas come okay so you sold this to a museum in germany yeah Mm -hmm. do you have other pieces in the permanent collections of galleries and museums Couple, yeah. Yeah. In Musée in Ostend, we yeah. have a folding screen. We've um, got we've got a piece in a collection in Scotland in yeah, uh, St. Andrews. St. Andrews, which Andrews. Is brilliant. So, yeah, yeah, they've got the football strip. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask how much of it's clothing that goes into permanent collections, because I imagine that confounds a lot of collectors, yeah, that's curators. Quite new. That's quite new and mm. we've seen that they don't really know how to like store it yet. Yeah. So it's a bit of a learning learning curve for I'm us. thinking more about the lowly position of fashion within the hierarchy yeah. of the museum yeah, yeah. Yeah. as okay. opposed to the technical aspects of it. Mm. Okay. Do you come across much of that for people? Can you know, under- we just come across that all the yeah. time, yeah. you know, in terms of how on both sides of it, the, like, the fashion historians say, you know, how can that be interesting? It's just a burgundy jumper. Mm-hmm. Because they expect fashion in a fashion museum to look like a Bjork costume or, you know, a Martin Margiela waistcoat made of broken crockery it doesn't look like a kind of nice school jumper so we have that on one side and then I mean on the other side with museums I guess that's why I mean I we just we talk a lot and I always try and like turn that into quite serious texts because I really want to explain that this is not just about oh we do fashion isn't it nice it's like this is a piece that is meant to absolutely interrogate all those hierarchies between kind of the legitimate world of kind of fine art and then mass culture and design as something that's considered underneath and something like that is exactly on this kind of border of um, which is kind of problematic. Mm-hmm. The amount of times someone will still describe something as just window dressing. Yeah. 
which implies all these things to do with gender. You know totally. that it's like frivolous and it's and it's uh, shallow. Mm. And, it's a fear um, of the feminine. A fear yeah. of the feminine and the amount of because lots of visual artists they like to work in fashion and do things with like they love fashion shows because then you have like models. They love to dabble, but usually they always say, "Oh, but I'm not interested in fashion," because they know if they admit to really be engaged with fashion, they will taint the kind of autonomy and integrity of their kind of artistic position, which has to be kept separate to remain serious and sort of masculine. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly to... Well, the opposite frivolity. Yes, and while just window dressing is still a pejorative term, we are going to be here to, like... Be annoying, <laughs> too annoying. Well, that neatly seeks into my next. In the blurb for today, you asked these questions. It said, is window dressing simply an everyday part of popular culture or is it a unique and over, often overlooked form of art and design practice? Have you been able to draw a conclusion on this? I guess the question would be, do you have to say it's art to then for it to have value? Because I, I, we, we went to a conference mm-hmm. um, a few months ago and the incredible curator Judith Clark was there and in a way, she was sort of arguing that exhibition design is an art form. And I'm always a bit I sort of unsure about this because it's, all, like you, it's like people want to be let into the, the world of art so that it can be legitimised. And often so they can just get paid more. You know, we know the designer Peter Saville, who's an incredible designer, but he wants to be an artist because he just wants to get paid more for what he does anyway. And the gravitas. Yes, the title as well. So, of course, I mean, maybe it's been from this sort of luxurious position of being an artist mm-hmm. and saying, like, I don't see the design and art are any better than each other. Like, it's just yeah. about this kind of old uh, yeah, hierarchy of, like, mass culture as female. Sure. So yeah. I would rather see, like, museums democratised and, like, all these things. If you go to somewhere like Mexico City... Folk art and high art, they're absolutely intertwined. It's just our problem in the West that mm. we have we have an issue. So mm. I would rather see what is appreciated and collected and the way it is somewhere like Japan. Yeah. I think that's more important than everybody jostling yeah, to get into art and because it's it's always for economic reasons. When you've got an art fair for performance art. And people trying well. to find a way to monetize that. Yeah. Mm. It's um yeah, we can have a whole other conversation but that's the concept and that's the conversation that we wanted that's what we're doing it's not just like we like jumpers Mm -hmm. so we want to work out why are all these things still in place Mm -hmm. the same with the window dressers um and the research we did and understanding what a weird world that was because it was always men who did it but it's such a kind of it has such a precarious like male um identity because you're dealing with like you know flounces and frills and shallow so window dressers had to kind of style themselves a bit like you know the tv show mad men and these kind of ad ad guys Mm -hmm. who are like these like suave guys kind of manipulating the desires of female customers so that job had to be kind of staged like that as this kind of playboy thing even though they were all gay yeah it's really fascinating it borrows motifs and language from things that are seen as more have more gravitas yes um so this shop has been on a bit of a tour and now we have it in Dundee and you've recurated I suppose the contextual um, content of the exhibition what can people see when they go out there and why have you chosen what goes alongside the shop I suppose um, we don't often get to show in Scotland mm-hmm. in fact we've seldom showed, showed in Scotland so <laughs> most of the <clears throat> most of the objects 
uh, historical objects that surround the full shop relate back to either Dundee or Scotland mm -hmm. and, um, and its past. So we have um, a beautiful uh, work by Graham Little, who is an artist, for those of you that don't know, who's an artist that lives in London, but he is from Dundee originally, studied at Dundee. And then I think Goldsmith. Graham, are you here? <laughs> Goldsmith? He's nodding. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, so we have a piece of his work. And what I love about that particular work is um, in the historical, you could look at Graham's work and you, you might not know it's from now. It could be the future. It could be the past. I like the time, the, the sort of timelessness mm. that um, is in that is in there. And what I really love is that in the it's a picture of a boutique from his imagination. It's from magazines, but also his imagination. In that particular picture, everything that's folded on the shelves or the shoes that are sitting there, I want to try them on. Mm -hmm. Like it is proper desire that that picture is like a window display. Mm -hmm. It makes me want to buy those things in that shop. So it operates in a similar way to your full mm -hmm. shop? I think so, yeah. I think so. And then, um, like, opposite of that, we actually have, we have a, a, a sculpture uh, by an artist called John Buckley that used to sit in the window of um, the Rita Rusk hairdresser, um, really famous hairdresser in Glasgow. Uh, Rita's actually coming tonight to the opening. Um, her and her husband had many salons across uh, sort of the west of Scotland, but they had their mecca, their main mecca, was in uh, Glasgow, in the city centre, and Palacio, which is the sculpture out there, which is a sort of clown, scary figure, used to sit in their salon window. And it's a Marmite piece. People either love it or hate it. Um, I'm from Edinburgh, and I even remember it sitting in the window of their salon. So we've managed to find the actual... We've managed to... Rita sold it at auction. Well, before she sold it, though, there was something that happened. Yeah. Um, she yeah, sold, she sold it. Yeah, she sold it at auction, though. Um, you're totally right. Yeah. She sold it at auction because uh, the window got destroyed once of the salon by an orange march, and uh, the sculpture fell on the ground and smashed. She then had John Buckley, the original artist, um, refurb it and, and fix it. And then to her, it was never the same again. So she sold it at auction. And then Kenny, who owns a hair, um, hair salon in Paisley, he bought it at auction and it now resides in a hair salon, Kenny's hair salon in uh, Paisley. So that's where we found it. It's been about the Palacio, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so just to tie things up, we've got time for questions now. Um, what's next for Atelier EB? Is this the end of this show, iteration of the show? And what, happen, what, what happens next? It is the end yeah. of this. Though I'd also say that one thing that's been brilliant about, you know, we made this piece as a kind of, not problem solver, but something to kind of like fill a hole in an exhibition. And now it's become this thing that kind of generates things, which I didn't really expect that it's going to have a kind of life of its own. You can curate a show, whole show kind of around it. So we'll see in the future, mm -hmm. but... People keep asking us when we die, what are they going to do? Who's going to do the windows? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a whole, you know, that's a very practical, question. Oh, we need to train up some. Or when we die, you know, like, yeah, if yeah. We, so it's, so it's, yeah. We like that 
proves problematic as well. <laughs> Good. Then our next, we're just starting the new collection now that mm-hmm. this is all done. Yeah. Start the wonderful cycle again, start all the research and manufacturing and work out what we're going to do. But and I think this collection will be a small collection. <laughs> we normally do a small, after a big show mm-hmm. like this, we normally do a smaller collection um, and get certain things out of our system that we want yeah, to wear. be a bit faster, not yeah. build this whole world around it. Yeah, and then... Okay, thank you very much for answering our questions today. Um, we have time for a few questions from the floor. If anyone has anything they'd like to ask. Hi. Hi. Uh, well done. It's a really great piece. And I saw the work at the Serpentine and it was amazing too. Um, while I was at the Serpentine, I went to your shop and I tried on some clothes. And it was I had like mega performance anxiety. And I wonder, like, whether that kind of performance was, was thought through when you were designing the show. So did you try clothes on in the showroom? Yeah. So yeah. you got to go behind because... The with the veil. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for those of uh, you that didn't go to the Serpentine, we had the fake shop that showed our work. And then you walked down the corridor and you could walk into another room and that was the showroom. And whatever was in the shop window, you could then try on in the showroom. Um, and there's a mirror and a screen to, to change behind. And you can try whatever on and you could put in an order. Because in the showroom, there are the, the more expensive items that are order only. So we don't contribute to the landfill. Um, and we only make to order. But then, if you walk down the corridor again, there was another shop, which we called the real shop. And there you could buy, like, sweatshirts, uh, brooches the sort of cheaper ranges um, or range uh, for the collection. So there were three different ways of looking at the collection. And it, I mean, it's a really good question because some people cannot wait to rip their clothes off and show, you know, they're going to say, that first of all, they're that really shy and they'll say, oh, I don't want to try anything on. And then before you know it, they've got everything on. And then there's other people that just want to talk about the way it, they don't want to try anything on. They just want to touch. They just want to touch it and ask you questions about it. It's very, it's very public, um, but um, it's it's really valuable to us because we get to um, have dialogue directly with. Doesn't even have to be the customer. It's the passerby. They don't have to buy anything, but there's nothing quite like trying on a cashmere jumper, mm. you know, or um, you don't have to buy it. That's the beauty of it. But to try it on, is, it's a nice experience. It was also that, like, for me, just the, the total fantasy that you go to an exhibition in a museum, you, you look at all these things, and then someone says, do you want to try it on? <laughs> yeah. Come into this salon and go behind here, behind these hands. Like, that is basically my, like... Yeah, seduction. ...dream come yeah. true. So, <laughs> and then, of course, because we hadn't... There wasn't really any real... There's so few mannequins in the show, we thought, well, the people become the mannequins. And then, of course, then we have all our mannequins in all these different shapes and sizes and colours and ages. And everyone can see someone else wearing it. So thanks for being bold and trying it on. Yeah. But we know it's not for everybody. Everybody has different kind of thresholds for how much they want to... That happens. I used to work in fashion retail, and you would get customers who'd come in... Well, it was a shop called Alamode, which was behind Harrods. Um, it was a Mecca as well. It was a Mecca, <laughs> it was the sort of late 90s. Yeah. And Trini and Susanna used to come in. Oh, yeah. And they stripped off in the middle of the shop, <laughs> just wandered about in their knickers, touching each other, <laughs> pit and stuff. And then you'd get other people, you had to move the mirror inside mm-hmm. the room, not look at them. Yeah. So I think 
you're able to replicate that sort of performance anxiety that you get mm. yeah. when you're shopping for real. Yeah. Any more questions? It's a great talk. Um, you're obviously in, both in different cities and both very busy. And I often think, I wonder, I often wonder when something is winging its way to Becca or Becca to Lucy as in a design and I wonder, I almost don't want to ask the question because I don't want to know in a way because I like picturing it, but what is there, are there physical things that arrive in a, in a post box or is it all on computer? I don't like computers very much, but you know, what, what does that look like? Because we never get to see that obviously, but it must, I'd love to see the kind of chemistry and the so as an example, a really good question. Just last night, Lucy arrived, half ten at night, just got off the train, and I've got a little front door. We've got a little front door that you have to come in, and she's sort of getting in the door with her bag, but she's got this roll, and um, she's made it. It's, it's rolled up fabric, and she's used an old paintbrush as a handle, and she's masking taped it onto the roll, and she's like, you take that, that's for you. Basically, that's five panels to the new paravon, that we're, the new folding screen that we're making that she's just painted in her studio that Steph is... Well, we're going to get upholstered and then Steph's going to make the... So that is literally how it operates. It's, we don't often use FedEx. We, we, are, we are physical. Yeah. <laughs> we tend to pack things into... We both have big suitcases. We're always, like... Changing. Yeah. And there's just something really to be said about not seeing each other that often. Because Very important. we just don't, we can't, we're in touch all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we would do a telly if, if we didn't have, you know, like WhatsApp. Like, that facilitates all of this, all this amazing new te- communication. But um, what it means is that we kind of, we get ideas, but then like, over sort of three or four months, we might find things secondhand or make drawings or just, like, think things through. So every time we meet, it's very, very kind of full intense, and exciting yeah. and really intense. Yeah. But then we part again. And it also means that we don't bug the hell out of each other. Yeah. That's how you kind of get on. There's a, there's a, there's a good... There's a, um, a respectful distance. Yeah. But there is lots of posts and, and, and swaps. We, and For one collection in particular, we, we designed it in a way that I thought was really... I was really happy we found this way where we'd we'd talk about things that we wanted to make, certain concepts. And what we did is we both made them in paper, one-to-one scale, like what we imagined, like a T-shirt, you know, with an ornament on it. And then we would get together and just put them all on the floor. And we might have made the same idea, but done it different ways because we worked differently. And it also means that it's halfway between like a sketch, which we don't really do, and a finished garment or a toile. So the paper, they end up all looking, you know, the, the paper clothes that get burned in China to kind of um, uh, to honour uh, ancestors. Mm. So things look a bit like that. And it also means you, if you just put them all out on the floor, you can also immediately see what a collection might look like. So you say, oh, we can take that out. Or So maybe as a visual artist, working with paper as this intermediary form is really, really helpful. And I've never heard, ever heard of that before. So again, we're just like making things up as we go along, but... Does that kind of uncertainty approach each other or is it not really? Is it more feeling like presenting something that's really quite resolved and they either with grace accept that or they kind of negotiate that or...? It's the first one. Getting kind of... Because we use each other 
Certainly, it's like music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If I know it looks good on Lucy and it looks good on me, then we're on a winner. Do you know what I mean? Like because we are, we are, we are different shapes and and we have different tastes. Um, it's really hard to. It's just so comfortable. If I had a dilemma, it, without sounding arrogant here, I've worked in my my personal field long enough that if I didn't know the body by now, I would, you know, I should really change. So. I'm very, even though I might be not confident in other areas in my work, I'm mm -hmm, extremely really confident. Decisive, yeah. And Lucy is exactly the same. So, but it doesn't, it doesn't cancel, we don't cancel each other out because Lucy's an artist and I'm a designer. We have a completely different way of looking at things. And that is what is mm -hmm. fascinating. So I think in a design, in design terms, and Lucy thinks in art terms, and that, that gives me the, like, I then am allowed space. And then Lucy is sort of, like, marginalising, no, we can only have it in this colour, Lucy. That is the only colour in that colour palette, you know? So it, it, it just, I just think yeah, we just have to give, we've given things up, you know? Because we work together, we can give it up and it's okay. And we know the value of how, actually, it takes, sometimes it takes a long time for an idea to kind of, either filter yeah. through or whatever so there'll be things that we might be a bit like ambivalent about in, e in each other's ideas and often you just keep quiet and that kind of maybe not so good idea just falls away you don't have to argue about it exactly things, the, the, the good things just kind of because it's done over such a long period of time they just kind of the things that keep recurring we know. Through, yeah. and um and then there's this kind of this ping pong of I have an idea for something back to you. You have an idea, well, we could do that, but we could pixelate it. And I'd be like, yeah, but then we could put it with lingerie and then and it just... Yeah, just back and forth. Yeah. But we also, I have to say, we also work with brilliant people. So Lucy and I, um, over the years, Mary is one of them, we have a black book of, like, makers, uh, writers, um, that, we, that we pull on to make a telly look fantastic. So, um, but... Also, it's because we believe that we, we shouldn't do everything. It's important that everybody has work and that you utilise what's on your doorstep and you understand people's skills and we take advantage of that. So we work with a lot of brilliant people um, in order to create what we do, whether that be factories or independent makers um, or writers. Thank you both for a very interesting talk. Um, I was interested, you used the word nostalgia, Perhaps just kind of a, a certain age, but I find that there's a deep sort of melancholy in a lot of the work um, when it's displayed in, in, in a museum context, in the vitrine context. Um, and I wonder if you, how you, how you feel about that, and how that then uh, is sort of flipped over when people put the clothes on and wear them, and the, whether you see fashion perhaps or your approach to fashion as a bridge between. Um, sculpture and performance. I think there is, I think you're right, I think there is melancholy within it because um, because that's what we're faced with. You know, in the short time that we've made collections, we've watched the industry here, like... Uh, decline, decline. Yeah, it's, it's like there's, there's so few that we can work with now um, because, yeah, everybody's going out of business. Just things are changing, things are shifting. But it's, it's not, like, preachy, and nor is it, like, holding on to the past. We're respectful of the past, but we have to try and find formulas and solutions. And so I hope it also is positive that 
you know, that we're making collections, not every season, but in, in a different pace. And, you know, we're, we're trying to do things that look to the future. I would say also that the when you say in a museum, that's also kind of changing as well, because if mm. you think about things like the collecting habits of the V&A, where they're snatching placards out of people's hands to, to put into collections. Um, so I think from what I see, like museums are also kind of changing and responding. And with the idea of nostalgia, it's something that I get maybe criticised or it gets mentioned a lot in terms of my own practice as an individual because I basically only work with kind of material from the past. And I would always say, like, well, where does the past, where does it stop and start? I mean, there's kids now dressing from the 90s and they think that's, like, really old. And so I'm just not sure where the, the, the present and the past kind of pass ways. And, um, well, anyway, in a really great period where we're kind of re-examining the past and the past is a very, very interesting place depending on how you look at it. And it's a great moment for fashion history, for... Mm -hmm. Post-colonial, like there's just so much interesting new perspectives on the past, and um, and I think the digitisation of, of collections as well. Yeah. Totally, yes. opened yeah. it up to people who might not otherwise have access. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. You can find more stories and resources on our website at vam.ac.uk/dundee. That's vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee.